Welcome to Picks and Flicks. This is a podcast where myself, Stephen Pigeon, and my co-host, CJ Welsh, take game and movie pairings and discuss them to see if they work against each other in different ways. CJ is a filmmaker and producer, and I work in production across both games and film. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of this land of which we currently occupy, and pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded, it always was, and always will be Aboriginal land. In this episode, we are looking at Goosebumps Escape from Horrorland, the point-and-click adventure game that came out in 1996, and the Fear Street movie trilogy out on Netflix. We've decided on this pairing as they are both adapted from the original books written by R.L. Stein. This is also your full spoiler warning for these titles, as we will be discussing these in depth. Further content warnings and info will be included in the show notes, but for now, let's get into it. Let's do it. So first thing, um, the one, the first thing I want to point out, right, the Fear Street trilogy is a banger and I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. Right. I, I was surprised. I thought it was going to be like for kids because in my mind, Goosebumps is a kid's series. And I'm like, oh, so it's like a children's friendly horror film. But of course it isn't because the people who read Goosebumps as kids are now our age and are like 30 year old millennials. That's it. So all- it makes total sense. Another thing I totally didn't realize is because I read I read like most of Goosebumps books when I was a kid and loved them. I never read Fear Street, which is also by Arl Stein, um, and apparently they were a much more like young adult slasher series. And like it was it was a series where each book was a continuation from the last. Really? See, I didn't know. I think I must have skipped the uh, the Fear Street books too, which surprises me because I read every Goosebumps book. I remember being big on it but of course if fear street was its own brand mm. i may not have picked up on that I, re- I read a lot as a kid it didn't mean i was that smart what were some of your favorite goosebumps books oh man do you remember do you remember the blob ones yeah and there was like there was like three of those or four of those god that was so good I, and I, the um the puppet the little the little ventriloquist of dummy. the living dummy that dude yeah oh man i oh, had nightmares about that guy that was know, on. funnily enough recently i watched um toy story 4 because I hadn't actually seen it before and I watched it like, like a month or two ago. And there's that scene like in the an- antiques shop where there's like, and, and like they're, they're just, <laughs> they're puppets for the for the villain, but like they're just like little drone servants and it's like five of them. But they immediately just reminded me of Slappy from Goosebumps. Yeah, 100%. And, and, 100%. and that's got to be intentional, right? Like, yeah. And, and just they, how, they how yeah. creepy and like awful it is. And like, oh, this is like, I wasn't expecting it from a Toy Story movie, but it worked so well. It works brilliantly. Yeah. No, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And what I, what I think is interesting, the first, my first impression of both the game escape from Horrorland, mm. And I, I use that term loosely, but it is the game. It is a game. There are games. It, it mechanics, is primarily a game. Felt, that felt very goosebumps. And so did fear street, but in a different way. Yeah. So it made me realize like you, like there are so many different ways you could tackle goosebumps as a brand to do stuff with. I, it's funny because like I dived into um, Escape from Horrorland and it like when I started out playing it felt kind of very jank and I wasn't sure how I was going to go with it but I ended up loving it. Um, and right, the jank is real. It like it loads in and it only plays at six forty by four eighty <laughs> resolution. Like you can't I, I ended change up so, it uh, because I don't know if you downloaded from the same link that I used, but it ran in like a like a Windows ninety five emulator. 
and I full screened yeah. the emulator so I could play the game uh, in full screen. My yeah, mine wasn't in an emulator. Mine mine ran it as the actual program, um, and what it did was at first it made it was full screen in that i couldn't see any other part of my monitor but the whole game played in a tiny little window in the yep. top left corner and i had to go back and start it by saying uh don't run in full screen as part of the boot options and then it was windowed and i could just see that little box but i could not get that box centered or moved anywhere really? so i had to play the whole game staring at the corner of my monitor it was so holy funny. shit that would have been really frustrating it, honestly, it wasn't. After the first like five minutes, I was totally cool with it. I realized like you don't need a 4K monitor to play this game. Don't worry about it. I oh, could have no. played it on a phone. It would have been fine. I actually ended up streaming some of it to um, a mate on Discord. Just like I was like, hey, if anyone wants to vibe while working from home, I can play Discord and I can play Goosebumps and we can just hang out. And so like halfway through playing, my mate jumped on and we just started catching up. And it was, oh, it, was, it, was it was lovely. Um, no, but uh, funnily enough, the so. Uh, the Goosebumps game too gave me a lot of Scooby Doo vibes. Yeah, very strong Scooby Doo vibes. Yeah, with, with like all the monsters and enemies just clearly being like people in costumes, kind of like old Doctor Who style. Um, but you know what? It, it did freak me out. Like I knew it was people mm. in costumes, and yet like that, the, there's a scene where you get chased by a mummy. I I was I was like, oh my god, I got to get out of here before this mummy gets me. I, reckon- I was like, it's wild how much the game suckers you in. And you're like, it's people in costumes and it's Scooby Doo. But if you just if you set, if you let it work, it does. And you're like, yeah, I'm into it. It actually does work. And like, because the game opens up with that shot of like coming down, and it's got the Goosebumps ticket with the dog and the family in the in the real world house, and then you go into it. And then the and then this the one bit that stood out to me like early on is when you get chased by the werewolf. And then, yeah. And then what? <laughs> and then when you dive into like the the um bush and the and the dead trees and stuff, and you have that shot looking up underneath from the werewolf howling with the full moon behind him with the silhouette. I'm like, this is fucking amazing. It's brilliantly put together where you think like, you know, as you said, the jank is real. It looks and feels a little bit janky at the start, but very quickly your brain just is like, you know what? Ignore the jank. It's a banger. It yeah. works. And I'm like, this is the sort of stuff because it's, it's, it's for everybody listening at home who has no idea what we're talking about. The game is a full full motion video, FMV, right? So mm. the cutscenes aren't aren't like animated cutscenes. It's real people acting in front of a green screen. You know right? what I, you know what I found out too? So like the other big thing is Jeff Goldblum is in this game playing Dracula. Yeah, yeah, if you didn't know, it's spoilers. Which Jeff is... Goldblum appears in this game. Like what? That was so out of left field, man. I did not know that was gonna happen. So did I I hadn't told you Jeff Goldblum was in it, did I? No, yeah. I, I got to the bit and I was like, is that Jeff Goldblum? Oh my God, it's Jeff Goldblum. What the fuck is oh Jeff my God. Goldblum doing in this game? I, I thought I'd mention that to you, but if I hadn't, that actually makes it so much better. Um, it was a, a solid gold. I probably spent five minutes not paying attention to that that scene at all <laughs> because I was so surprised. I had to look it up on IMDb and be like, is that is that legitimately Jeff Goldblum or a really good impersonation? No, it's it, him, it, what? It is. Um, and another thing too, so one of the kids, Clay, who has the red cap, he's the kid from the Santa Claus with Tim Allen. What? <laughs> I love it. Oh my God. Sorry, and like, this, this is an all-star cast. Oh my God. The, the the main girl who like takes you through at the start, she's only in this game. Um, when I looked her up, I couldn't find her in, in anything else. But yeah. This I, was, she was a one and done. That was it. But it's, wow. it, it seems like in this era, because also the, the website where I found um, this game is like an archive website with all of these FMV mm. games from the 90s. And like most like big budget movies like Jurassic Park and Mission Impossible have these weird and niche FMV games that came out. Mm. Um, 
and it's one of those things where like, I reckon at the time people were like, oh, this might be like the next thing in entertainment, like video games, but not just like your space invaders and stuff, like FMV games of high-end actors, and we're going to like lean into this. And Jeff Goldblum is in this game, which is amazing. Well, um, you, remember, you remember there was a whole time period where these were the kinds of games getting made because it was easier to shoot actors yeah. as cutscenes than it was to animate them because the, the the computer technology wasn't like unreal engine now like it's photorealistic that was not the case in the 90s so i remember playing games like uh zork nemesis i used to play a lot of that as a kid and all the cutscenes were like people acting and it looks so weird now it's clearly somebody in front of a green screen yeah doing a weird thing and they're wearing a costume and they don't know what the hell's going on because they can't see any of the game but in the game it's like a spirit floating in a ball and he's talking to you and you're like oh wow how'd they do this but I, I remember that, and I remember games like Red Alert 2, where all of the little commander videos that played were like actors. I remember being like, wow, these actors are great. And they had some big names in that. Yeah, man. I never Act, Actors were getting into it. I never played Red Alert myself, but I had a few friends who did. And my brother played, played it a lot, actually. And he he got me to, he showed me a lot of it. And just having those actual actors in the corner of your screen while you're playing, and they're going ham on it. And like, it's really yeah. funny and comedic and just amazing. And I'm like, that's perfect for this style of game. It is, and that's the thing. They they ham it up, right? So like, it, it works because they they are self aware enough to know that this is a video game. It's meant to be fun, right? So like, modern games are so serious, and they take themselves so seriously, and the performances. And I'm like, I love it. I think of like God of War or like Last of Us, mm. where it's like, yeah, really serious, heavy, heavy performances, and it works because of how good the facial animations are and blah blah blah. But it's like back in the day, if you're developing this, you're like, dude, it's gonna play at 480p. No one's gonna be able to see the nuance in your face. Treat it like theater. You got to ham it up, and they did, and it works. I also love though, um, particularly with Goosebumps, because it's four eight p and so compressed. Because the entire game is like a gigabyte. <laughs> it is the whole game, yeah. <laughs> and so and like, that's that's with the videos. If you took the videos yeah. out, it would be like nothing. It would fit on a floppy disk. No, because that's the thing. So with the videos, it's all compressed to shit, and the color, it's all pixelated, and it's all like. I think, like, the main character's face has, like, three shades of colour in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's an aesthetic. But that's it. That, that's kind of what I'm getting at. I love it as an aesthetic choice. Yes. And, and part- we have, like, a synthwave, vaporwave. Yeah. I don't know what this is called, but let's have more of this. Let's make this a trend. Part Bring of me back. wants to work on a game idea that incorporates that specific style of FMV. Like, I'm ready, man. I'm ready to, you know, the 90s are supposed to come back shortly, right? Like, the 80s <laughs> had their time in the sun again. It's 90s time. Let's do it. Well, you know, another weird thing that this, this got me thinking about too. So with uh, the trend of these old FMV games, with the, with like a big name actor like Jeff Goldblum, it, like it, that trend steered away from video games a bit and you didn't mm. get a lot of Hollywood stuff, but then it's coming back. It's so, coming back, right? Yeah. Because um, Death Stranding, for example, is, is chock full of people. It's got... Um, uh, Norman like, Reedus, Norman Mads Reedus. Mikkelsen. Yeah, there's um, that French actress everybody loves. Guillermo yeah. del Toro was, was involved, and he's got his likeness in, in the game. And another one. Uh, so, Twelve Minutes just came out. Um, I've just bought I still it. Haven't played it. Yeah, yeah. It's I just bought list. it, but I haven't, I haven't played, played it, it yet. I remember when it was announced, like mm. ages ago, of being like it's a time loop like thriller. You just play through the same twelve minutes again and again and again. And I saw it. And I'm like sold, and it's Annapurna Interactive. So I'm like, I'm gonna fucking play this game. And then, like, later on, they announced the voice cast for it with Daisy Ridley, James McAvoy, and William, Willem Dafoe. And I'm like, what the fuck? This is insane. <laughs> You're right. We have come full circle. It's the 90s again. Actors are going into movies as serious things. What about... Um, it's just not, it's just not this, necessarily this, FMV because yeah. it's all, like, it's, it's, it's all the game's graphics and motion capture yeah. in 3D. But 
it, even if it is motion capture, it, might, it may not necessarily be that. They're stranding. We we though. we are seeing though actors in games too. I mean, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but like games like Erica, I know we've got it on our list to talk about at some point. Mm. But that's got real actors in it doing real stuff as well, doesn't it? Or is that all just no, super yeah, no, photorealistic, that, unreal? That's all filmed. I I haven't finished it yet, but that is all um, actually like filmed. It's it's interesting playing Erica too, and like you get to a point where um, like it gives you a choice, and you, and it's waiting for you to make a choice, and the actors are just being filmed standing there, kind of like idle for a bit. Yeah, yeah, because the it's it's film but it's sort of like a, almost like a choose your own adventure. So they had to just roll camera and have a bit of idle footage. Imagine doing like Atmos in a film set, right? Where everybody thinks you're finished the shot and the audio guy has to yell out like, no, everybody shut up for a minute. I've got to do Atmos, please. And everyone in the whole room just sits there in total silence, just waiting for that minute to be over. It's like that. All the actors just waiting on set, just chilling while they wait for the player to make a decision. I'm like, yeah, that's what's happening in my head. I'm like, all of the actors in the cast and crew are just all standing there like, hmm. Mm. any second now he's gonna click a button and then we can act again yeah i'm like i know that's not what's happening but it's what i imagine every time but yeah man oh goosebumps was was right i loved it so much watching them together right because i watched uh each i watched the three fear streets one night after each other and i watched it with my wife right so we sat down and we were like all right we're gonna watch a movie let's do it we went into the first one expecting again jank right like i was like oh it'll be like a kid's horror movie it'll be, i was getting i was expecting scooby-doo and it was, I was like, oh my God, this is an actual horror movie. Like, damn, there's a murder in the first like five minutes, not even two they're, minutes. They're I not was like, oh, like they're not fucking around in that opening they are scene. Not. It is graphic. So they, they pull the scream trick by getting Maya Hawke in for the opening scene and kill her immediately. And kill her straight away. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember seeing the credits and being like, oh, Maya Hawke's in this. That's like, oh no, she isn't. Never yeah. Mind. <laughs> um, and then, and then, like when they're chasing through the mall, and you can see all the other people who's killed, he's killed just then as well. And then, it's um, brutal, man. Yeah, the other one too is like later on in the film. Um, I'll say spoilers, but I'm going to put a spoiler thing in it when I do a proper intro anyway. Uh, but when two of the main characters get brutally murdered, and, and like, and like brutally, like her head, uh, one of the characters' head is like pushed through a bread slicer, and you and you see everything. Yeah, it's fucked. It. I was traumatized by that scene. My wife I, it's funny, to I pause the it. movie and be and just take that in and be like, "Oh my god, I I I cannot believe what we just saw. That was the stuff of nightmares." Well, it's the kind of thing too, right? Where it's exactly what you said. You thought it might be like a kids horror movie, and and then like you you don't expect it to go as hard as it does, and then it takes it like another step further. Um, so yeah, it like that happens, and then like not even thirty seconds later, one of the other characters gets a axe to the head and dies. And like, and like, these are two main characters that you spent the entire movie with, and now they're dead in like this climactic battle. Uh, it's insane. Yeah, man, that just reminded me too. They they go back to that that uh, it's a bread slicer, right? Mm. And they 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 show it, and you're like, oh my god, that's fucked up. I can't believe what I just saw. How brutal was that? They then go back to it at one point in the same episode, just as a quick little flash, and you're like, oh yeah, that happened. She's definitely dead. And then it happens a third time in the third movie. Yeah. So it's like, you think you're done with the bread scene. You're like, oh yeah, we've, we've moved on. We've got different murders. And then there's like a flashback in the third movie where she sees, or the guy sees all the murders again. And you, and it's it's like they do the whole scene again. And you're like, ah, it's still fucked up. Oh, I, was, I, also, I love that. It was so well done. It's also one of those things too. So I watched this um, with my girlfriend too. And she doesn't, uh, she typically does not like horror movies. And she was surprised at how much she enjoyed Fear Street. Um, 
And it was one of those reactions too with, with, with the bread slicing. We're watching it, and she's like, kind of like staring, like sitting there shocked in horror. And I and I'm sitting there watching it with this giant grin on my face because I'm fucking yeah. loving it. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Oh my god. Um, I also love too. So when they get into the witch stuff, and they have like that quick killing montage of all the murderers with each in each time period. So you have like that 1930s. Um, guy like pushing someone under the water and drowning them. The little kid with the baseball bat and a couple other things. And weirdly, this might be like my like fucked like I've watched horror since I was a little kid thing. But I wanted to see more of that um like kid uh, killer, not not like the killer kid. I should I should clarify the killer, the killer kid. I was gonna say I, I noticed this really interestingly. Um, there's a certain level of of horror that seems to be acceptable to Goosebumps slash Fear Street, mm. which is that you you can murder kids mm. and you can have a kid do murdering, but you cannot actually show the murder. So I noticed this really interesting. All the teenagers, you witness them get murdered, right? You see the death. Yeah. But with the with the younger kids, it all happens off camera or it's implied you hear it, but you don't actually see it. What scenes in Fear Street do we, do we see where like actual children die? Yeah, exactly. You you you're not going to see any. So, for example, uh, the second film, the summer camp. Yeah. There's the 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 kid in blue team who's guarding the little the you know the oh, three red team people. Yeah. And, and the guy with the his... axe shows up, right? Yeah. You don't see the kid get murdered. You hear it, and then later on, when the other guys are in the room, going like, "Oh my god, he murdered a bunch of children in here. It's just blood. There's just blood and bits of meat. And, you don't and, actually and see, you see any the of the kids." Glasses of the blue team kid too, and that that made me think of Piggy from Lord of the Flies. Oh, 100%. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got strong vibes of that, yeah. Um, yeah. What, okay, what did you think of um, part two? Like, just that Look, that, 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 that one on its own. I'm, I'm curious. Just on its own? Okay, that was really funny because, um, so my wife, Kathy, and I, we watched um, Wet Hot American Summer, like, Oh, I need to watch ago. that. So it was perfect because we had, like, strong 90s, you know, it was it, like, 70s or something, Summer vibes, and they lean into that with um, lean with, into with Fear Street as well. Like what you open, like one of the opening shots of two of the characters is just them fucking on the bench, mm-hmm. right? It's that, and it's the music choices. I don't think they ever actually used the same song as Wet Hot American Summer. Oh, also, a quick side note: the the music choices in the soundtrack in each movie was fucking amazing. Oh, I actually wrote that down as like one of my talking points: is the soundtrack to Fear Street is a banger. Yeah. All three of them. And, and like, um, and like yeah. what, what, the main kid in um, like 996 having like an Iron Maiden t-shirt, I'm like, this is, yeah. yes, I'm so into this. Yeah. I, I should point out, actually, this is really interesting. Yeah, so the second one I really enjoyed, and I didn't know that we were going to be doing uh, the back and forth of the times. So I, I yeah. was definitely going yeah, into yeah. it. I was under the impression that like the first movie set in the 90s, the second movie set, I can't remember, 70s or something or 80s. I'm like, okay. And then the third one's meant to be set in like 1666. And I was like, that's what we're going to do. But it becomes clear very quickly that this is one story told as a trilogy and you go back and forth. Mm-hmm. And watching it, I was nearly like, this feels almost like it was meant to be like a six-part limited series instead of three films. I, I can tell you it was written and, and devised as a trilogy. <laughs> yeah, because you're like, it, I feel like watching it, I was like, it feels like it could work as a six-part series, but I also feel like it, it, this is a much more traditional uh, horror film thing where each film has its own beginning and ending and it feels contained but because it links into a bigger story it's like Netflix went okay instead of releasing one film every two years and we'll we'll get to the ending mm. you know like Friday the 13th Friday the 13th part two etc they just went look we, we want to tell the whole story let's just make all three films 
and really small well, one. And, and it works. It and totally works. And that's the works. thing. So, it, so I watched the movies as they came out because they the the movies released a week apart from each yeah. other. And ne- like Netflix marketed them all together, like the trilogy as like an event. So like part one comes out this week, part two comes mm. out the week after, part three comes out like the next week. Um, so it kind of was a limited series, just instead of being hour-long episodes, they're two hour-long episodes. Yeah, kind of. And, and I, I love, too, that they um, like really leaned into the fact that it's a movie trilogy and it's all like one big thing. Mm. Um, I, was, I, I looked up an interview from, um, I forget her name, but the writer-director across all three of them has, this mm. pl- has plans to do another trilogy, also from Fear Street, and has talked about like doing a kind of like Fear Street slash horror um, MCU style thing, so not necessarily mm. all of them, all of them like like very connected with the same story. But like you have this trilogy, you do another trilogy that's set in the same universe. You do like a miniseries. You do all, all different kinds of stuff. Mm. Um, and I'm always going to be here for more horror stuff, especially especially like like horror with good characters and good story that that Fear Street surprisingly had. Um, mm. And then like and leading into the actual horror and killing and murders. Um, yeah. Like part two, they they definitely like they kill uh, like ninety percent of all the campers. I was gonna say actually, it felt um, that felt really well done, but it was a little bit uh, Riverdale slash Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Well, it's very, like it's very like, there were moments where I was like, this is just silly. Like okay, do you remember that the grunge chick in the second one? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So she like she's dead. Right, like she is walking around with a piercing fracture in her leg, like she's dead, she's bleeding to death. Yeah, and then they fix it by like just jamming her broken bone back into her leg. I was, I nearly crawled out of my skin mm-hmm. when they did that, and I was like, oh my. and then she's like, they're like, can you walk on it? Like, oh yeah, totally. I'm like, no, oh, she yeah, has no, blood fine. poisoning and internal bleeding at this point. She also, is, she's who, going to die. Who knows, like what kind of like uh, shit from down in that cave under the toilets would have got into the Actually, got into the wound. Yeah. Right? That's a great point. No, they mentioned the shit smell like once. One person was like, oh, you smell terrible. I'm like, dude, as if the first thing they did when they walked in that room wasn't to go, oh my God, 10 years worth of campers shitting in this fucking toilet. And they didn't even mention it. (laughs) Like, what? But I I think that's a thing of like this convenient movie logic, but also um, that's like with what you said with Riverdale and Sabrina, the style of teenage, young adult Netflix stuff. It um, leaned into that, yeah. It, it was heavy on the melodrama. I don't. They knew what they were doing, and they were like, "Lean into it." It's a, it's a teen summer camp slasher movie. That's what we're doing. Uh, yeah, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I actually thought it was a lot of fun, and I, I think that's the the big takeaway for me as well. Like, it's it's actually not necessarily dumb, but it is dumb fun. It's dumb fun. It was silly when, like, at the very end. Again, spoilers, but like, lol, it's it's the you know you'll you will have seen it or else probably don't listen to this. But the very end of the second one, so the 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 two main uh, girls are <laughs> I can't remember they're like on the ground and they had two oh, different yeah, killers attacking um... them. They got stabbed like forty times. It went on forever, and they just kept they're like still talking to each other and they're like I still love you like what? And he comes over and he's like I'm gonna save you and he's doing chest compressions. I'm like dude, she's dead. She has bled out like five minutes ago. This scene went forever. Yeah. There is no way she got stabbed that many times for that long. Oh no, but you and know, still had enough oxygen in her lungs to be like, save me or whatever. Like, no, no. But there, there is a, re- there is a um, plot reason why she was able to come back specifically because it was him um, wanting her to come back, right? So yeah, I know, so but it's like whole, that. Yeah. It's not clear until the third. It's film not clear that until that's what happened. Th- so when you're watching it, you're just yeah. like, what? 
It's interesting. So I'll, I'll, I'll point this out too. So the, the reason this happens is they do the whole thing with Seraphia being the witch. And then it turns out the actual, what's actually happening is um, the good family, also subtle on the, on the naming conventions with the characters and like Sunnyside and Shadowfield. That was very goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> like subtle, but like I love it. Um, the good family in 1666 made a deal with the devil from, from this old book. And basically like they will offer up a name from someone in uh, Sunnyside, whichever whichever town is getting all the killings, and basically that that person um, gets possessed and turns into the killer and goes on a killing rampage, and then the good family um, or the good person who's done this gets whatever they want. So essentially, they like that's why they're the sheriff. Um, they become like big and, and well known and well respected in town, and that's why. Him. Yeah, one's the, one, the one brother is the mayor and the other one is the sheriff. Yeah, and that's why he, him specifically in part two, when he goes over to save the one girl that he's interested in, that he wants to be with, um, she can come back because the devil's like, all right, this, this is the deal you've made. She's okay. But that, but also that's not clear when you're watching that movie. It's only clear once you get to the 1666. I also really liked 1666. It was... um. The 1666 part, like everything was happening pretty quickly because I, I also thought that was going to be most of the movie, but it's only like and half it's an not, hour. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And then they go back to the 90s and like do that big trap of all the killers, and and it's it's awesome. I love it. Um, and all the killers are so creepy. Like that one that um, stabs the girl in part two with like the burned, melted face, and like constantly, yeah. and con- constantly like um, sticking out his tongue and licking and hissing. Like mm. it's so skin crawling, but I love it. Um, Man, you just made me realize something. Yeah, so I, I the the twist of the the bloke being the one who did the deal with the devil, right? So yeah. that was a pretty good twist. I I knew that there was some sort of bargain uh, at the very start, right? There was a deal with the devil or something because they kept pointing out at the beginning of the first movie that Sunnyvale, the neighboring town, has no crime. No one ever has any crime in Sunnyvale. But in Shadyside, there's a serial killer every three years or something. And so I was like, okay, the the plot twist here is going to be that someone in Sunnyvale or something that Sunnyvale is doing is protecting them from evil by offering up Shadyside. I knew it straight away, but they still managed to do a twist that made me go, oh, okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, It felt very Goosebumps in in that realm. Like that feels like a Goosebumps thing to do. I remember from the books that that was a big part of what they did was to subvert the reader expectations and mm. that the the big evil wasn't necessarily the evil that you assumed, you know? I thought that was really well done. Also, yeah, the the, the whole story of, like, in 1666, Sarah was a lesbian and got hung for it. But- oh, my God, you know what? The whole trilogy is a lesbian period piece. Yeah, They is. were going for the Oscar the whole time. Because, you know, we talk about, like, you know, um, there's so many of these films getting made at the moment, and this is not, not to disparage them at all, but if you do the math, there's been, like, four or five really high-quality lesbian period dramas. And I realized this is the first that I know of, lesbian period horror, and it's so well done. And you realize that every, all three of the films are a lesbian period piece on their own. Oh, yeah. And then as a trilogy... The whole thing works. I was like, oh my God, it's genius. It's so genius. It's also like, they're not uh, primarily lesbian period pieces. Like that's, that's it. Like it's primarily fear street horror, which I love. Yeah. And then like the characters in the story, are like very queer friendly and queer driven, which works, well, yeah. which works really well in its favor. I don't remember that from the books and it might've just been a sign of the times, but I don't remember Goosebumps as a series being particularly queer friendly. Not that they were queer unfriendly, but I definitely don't remember any major gay characters from the books. Goosebumps, I don't remember, but also Goosebumps was more marketed towards like children 
and like and like yeah like the age well the age range i'm not even sure what the age range for goosebumps really was you know i, I remember I, reading I, it i was young, but, like I eight eight young 12, was. but i i kept reading them in high school as well um, yeah that's what i'm thinking i was like they 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 transcend a, a specific age bracket like you they're child friendly you can read them as a mm. very young adult reader as an early reader mm. without it being too traumatic but it's just maybe more scary but it's still entertaining as a teenager they don't suddenly become not good like i feel like i could pick up a goosebumps now and read it and be entertained it is also one of those things too where like uh, goosebumps can get really dark like the books i remember one of them in particular was i think uh the, the grandfather clock or, or like the, the um i i can't remember if it was a goosebumps or if it was a choose your own goosebumps one I think it might have been choose your own, but basically, like mm. you, you, uh, you, the character in the in the book is like the the, the brother of this family with um he, what he describes as a really annoying, really shitty younger sister, and um, he wishes that she didn't exist. And then uh, throughout, as as the book goes, oh, yeah, as the book goes on, uh, there's like the the grandfather clock makes him like. Uh, go backwards in time, aging backwards. So he's he's um, you know going back to being a kid to to like to the point of like being a baby and almost being unborn, and implying that he may not exist if he goes that far enough. Which that in itself is also pretty dark. And then like he figures it he figures it out, comes back, um, and he mentioned that there was a flaw on the clock, but I didn't say what it was until the end of the movie, where um, the clock has like all the years on it as well, and the year that her sister was born was missing on the clock. And so when he comes back, the sister doesn't exist because she never existed because she wasn't born because the clock didn't have it. So he got his wish in the and, end. Uh, and he, got his and wish. He, he immediately regrets it, but there's no way of going back. And that the book just ends like that. Yeah. <clears throat> I do I do remember Goosebumps being quite dark. I tell you what, though, I don't remember them having quite this much blood and swearing or sex. So I do feel like... I, the... have, a, I have a feeling that's more Fear Street specific. Um, yeah, so that, that must be like a Fear Street being aimed at an older audience. But I also feel like this works because if you were a Goosebumps fan as a kid, mm. you've, you've grown up. You're very much open to blood, sex, and swearing. And so having it there, like I didn't feel like they were uh, hamming it up or trying to like overdo it. It felt like this was a movie for people my age. And I was like, yeah, cool. I'm but into it. It's also very much that kind of thing too where like they're playing into all the references and the homages to like actual horror movies. Like Scream... <laughs> And um, uh, Friday the Thirteenth, uh, and um, is Friday the Thirteenth for the the camp one? Or am I thinking of? Um, yeah, it's Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, uh, I'm th- I'm I always get Jason and Freddy mixed up. Um, yeah, no, Jason. Jason's the summer camp one, and then in, he's, not, on he's not even in the Freddy. first movie, which I think is the best part. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> I, I watched uh, I watched Friday the Thirteenth the first one a couple months ago. Yeah. Um, and I was surprised that he wasn't in it, and it's like, oh, yeah. the the kill- I actually I'll, maybe I won't spoil it because we're not specifically talking about Friday the Thirteenth. Um, too late, too late. Oh, it's it's been like twenty years. Come on, people, yeah, watch yeah. the movie. It, but it, yeah, no, I feel I feel yeah. like that that's a really good point in that it does lean into those those tropes, but in a really good way. Yeah. Like the 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 nineties slasher, the the summer camp thing. You know, it really does feel like they are not just. It's not parody. It's a love letter. Like they're they they know what they're paying homage to, and, and they do it really well. On that sense too, I think like uh, for that example of of the characters having sex in these movies and then dying, I don't know if that's in Fear Street because I haven't read the books. But that is like you, you watch. Um, I think it's Scream where one of the characters is showing horror movies and is talking about the rules of horror movies and basically like yeah, Scream, yeah, yeah. And uh, he basically <clears throat> goes on like as soon as two characters have sex, they're gonna die. Um, 
and it, and it just leans into all those tropes, um, which I don't which I don't think the Fear Street movies are like that tropey in that regard because it's it's more like nodding and references to those movies and it's done in a in a fun, well done way. I think. Mm. Um, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say um, there was a couple of bits that were like, yeah, righto. Like, like the humor is quite cheesy, but again, that feels quite goosebumpsy, fear streety. But the um, the plan to kill the sheriff was so convoluted. I was like, why? Why is this plan the plan? You could just grab a gun and shoot him. Why are you? And I was like, because that that it's like you said before, it's a bit Scooby Doo, right? And it feels mm-hmm. very slasher. It feels like it's paying homage to those those movies and those books by being like, we're not going to give you the easy answer if we're gonna we're gonna just run him over with a car. No, 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 no. We have to get the monsters to attack him, and that's where. And it's like, why? But it made sense. Yeah, it's also um, two <clears throat> things that stood out to me on that sense in the first movie is like, okay, so they go to the to the police station to talk to them, ask them for help, and then the main character steals the officer's gun. Um, and then I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be a big thing, and they're, and and like they're gonna like have this whole thing that comes out from it. And then basically, she uses it once on one of the killers, drops it. Yeah. forgets it leaves it and then that's it you never see or hear anything about this from that point on even though like that nah. sh- that should be a a really big relevant plot point um well, i also think it's interesting that the gun is never seen again in that um it just got picked up off the street by someone like it's I, just I gone think, i think uh the sheriff must have picked it up because he went to he went to like that road and like picked up the necklace from from the killer yeah, um, maybe, but they don't show it. He picks up the necklace, and that's it. The movie just kind of like forgets about it, and it's like you don't need to worry because we're not gonna we're gonna focus on other other stuff now. Yeah, but that would have made the ending much easier. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. no need to deal with that hyper convoluted plan. Yeah, um, I also okay. Yeah. The other thing that got me right the sixteen sixty six one. I I was like I realized something watching it, and it's that um, the we 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 think today of things like incels as being like a really modern invention right yeah but it's not it's like this has been around since since the 1600s since times of the salem witch trials and things because if you think about it what happened was this dude had like he either made it up or he actually had a sex dream about the local hottie she rejects him he calls her a witch that's pretty standard oh, yeah. incel that behavior was, um, that was the town drunk wasn't it yeah and it's like, you know, maybe like, I feel like, you know, when they talk about people accusing one another, you, if you've ever read The Crucible or yeah. seen the play, it's very much a finger pointing adventure, right? It's she did it, she did it, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, that's just standard incel bullshit. They're yeah. just, they're just mad that no one will fuck them. And so they're, they're like, or, she's a witch, better. Or like in The Crucible, for example, too, like one of the characters wants the other characters like plot of land or something. And so they're just going to out them and accuse them just so they can yeah. steal their shit. I love those dudes in that scene were so horny for it to be witches, man. When that guy was like, "It's a witch," that one dude leapt out of his chair. He was ecstatic. <laughs> He's like, "There's witches!" Yeah. He was like, "This guy's been saying it for years." It's- He's been muttering it under his breath at the town pub. There's witches in this town. I fucking know it. This town's full of witches. And then there are. He's like, "Yes." And then like, the, and then like the whole town gets together for the hanging because it's the big event. Yeah. It, it's, like, it's like the equivalent of them like sitting in and grabbing popcorn. It's like, oh, this is going to be good. They didn't have TV back then. So what are they going to do? Oh, there's a hanging. We're better go down to the local hanging tree. Like what? <laughs> I loved it, man. I loved it. Oh, it was like, I, I normally don't go in for those kind of movies where like, uh, you know, the last one I watched that I thoroughly enjoyed was, was Witch or The Witch. Yeah, but I don't normally like those period pieces because I'm like, ugh, everything is so gross and muddy and it probably just smells like horse shit. I'm just, I don't yeah. want to be involved in that that film. I don't want to be there. It's gross for me. And they're usually not that scary. 
This one, I was like, nah, this got me. It's only good. goes for like an hour before they, the plot line ends and they switch back to the 90s. And I did not expect that. I thought it was going to be the whole film. So I was like ready to go, all right, I'm going to sit through this two hour long movie. I'm going to be like, I'll get there, whatever it'll be. It'll be worth it. 20 minutes in, I'm like, no, this is great. I'm into yeah. it. Let's do this. It was rock and roll, man. All killer, no filler. It was fantastic. I also kind of like too, and like when I saw that this was going to happen, when I had like the preview of part three at the end of part two, that all the... Um, characters in 1666 are being played by the same actors from these past two movies you've just watched. I'm like, oh, like, you know, in the universe, to me, that makes no sense. It's kind of cheesy, whatever. But I, I but like as a, the movie thing, I loved it. But then they actually also tied it into the plot by being like, Seraphia is showing this main character what's happening. And so it's just all the people that she knows in this kind of like dream sequence telling of the story. <clears throat> Because then it cuts between, like, the main character is Seraphia and then, like, the actual Seraphia, and you see the, the different faces. And I thought that was that was a really well-done thing. It was cheesy and well-done at the same time. Yeah, 100%. I will say the the cheesiness was very much... Uh, it, it was, like, upfront. They were like, yes, this is happening. Get on board. Yeah. It, they didn't drag it out. It, it delves into uh, playing it straight very quickly. And then towards the end of it, like they don't hold back the bit where the hand comes off. Like you knew it was coming. Yeah. It's been a plot line for three movies now that she cuts her hand off. So you're like, that's going to happen. That's going to happen. When it finally did happen, it was so gruesome. It's so I gnarly. was crawling, trying to leave it was the room. Amazing. I was like, Oh my God, I cannot believe it. And it's like, it's like they did such a good job of lowering your, lowering your barriers and making you feel comfortable in that like false sense of security and being like, yeah, it's a little bit cheesy. It'll be fine. Get, get on with it. And they just keep ramping up how intense it actually is. When you get to that scene, you're just like, oh my God, what so, is, ugh. This and is, it feels like a very real horror film. It doesn't feel like an adaptation of a kid's series at yeah. all. This is actually kind of an, another point that I wanted to get to too. So um, for me with horror, uh, I, uh, there's, a, there's a whole thing about like gore in horror and like too much gore versus not showing gore and that kind of thing. And like, I watched all the Saw movies for the first time this year um, and I, I never got around to watching them because I didn't want to watch them because I didn't want a gore fest. Um, but then I ended up watching them and like they are a gore fest. But the first one specifically wasn't. And it, it, like a, a lot of the like sawing off the hand stuff, um, they show off camera. You see like a shot of the sawed off hand, but you don't see it in action. Yeah. Um, uh, but and then in, in the later Saw films, it just goes... It just goes wild with all of it um but we so with fear street i was like okay i'm gonna sign up for this i'm not expecting a lot of gore uh so when there was actual gore i was surprised and i loved it but it also wasn't over the top gore in in like you know blood gushing out everywhere and and bones and guts and intestines everywhere too like you you see and i say that mentioning like you see someone's head get chopped through bread slicer and you see someone get decapitated and you see someone like chop off their hand um yeah but it it didn't feel like it was um, focusing on the gore for the sake of the gore, if that makes sense. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't. It's definitely not that kind of movie. And actually, this is an interesting point to like, one thing I noticed from the game is that there's moments where there could be gore. Yeah. And it's like, if you wanted to, you could do it. But because they're aiming at children, they don't. But it still manages to be scary. Like I was saying, when the bit where the mummy was chasing me, I was legitimately like, oh my God, I gotta get out of here. You know, you know, it you, feels scary, and there was no, there's no blood in that game at all. Yeah, one of the thing, one of the moments that stood out to me a lot in that sense in the game too was when you meet Jeff Goldblum as a Dracula, and then like pretty immediately 
um, he starts dancing with the little girl character. I forget her name. Mm. Um, and I, it's just kind of like weird fever dream sequence of Jeff Goldblum dancing with this child um, in in, the, in this vampire castle. <laughs> if you think about them filming that, what an absolutely bizarre time that must have been for both of them. Yeah. Where the director is like, okay, so you're dancing with her. Um, you're either not aware that she's a child because she's wearing a costume disguise or you are aware and you're dancing with it, her anyway because your plan is to bite her as a vampire, right? Yeah. And while this is happening, we're going to pick your <laughs> pockets. So you need to dance really close to the camera and then hold it for a few seconds and then dance. Like, the whole choreography is so it weird. It doesn't need to hold it because whenever whenever you have the pickpocket bit, it's just a freeze frame. Yeah, but imagine, like, how they must have done that on the day. Like, yeah. it, they must have had him actually hold it for a second to make sure they got that freeze frame so he probably wasn't standing there for like 30 seconds but he still had to like dance close and stop and then dance away and it's like oh my god what a bizarre thing to have to explain to jeff goblin to do but yeah the other thing that's out to me too so you have that as his like introductory bit in the game and then like pretty soon after it's very like he's a vampire chasing you down and wants to kill you yeah um and, and, like, you don't see any blood. He doesn't actually get you, and, and like, nothing actually happens. But, like, the implication of what could happen if he gets you while you're chasing him, and there is that chase sequence where you're going down, like, a dark tunnel, and he's right behind you. And you can turn around and see him right there of, like, his angry, furrowed vein and the vampire teeth and then the Jeff Goldblum face. <laughs> and, yeah, just, like, oh, I wasn't expecting this to go um, this dark in this game as well. It's not super dark, yeah. But in as I was saying, like in a goosebumpsy way, yeah. where like they didn't need blood, they didn't need gore. I was scared. They managed to scare me and instill a sense of stakes. There was serious drama stakes, even though it was obviously a fun, quirky kids game, and the acting was super cheesy and and it was like whatever. But like it felt legit. You know what else happened in both the Goosebumps game and the end of Fear Street sixteen sixty six, which is very um, akin to this. Uh, R.L. Stein, I'm assuming. So at the end of 1666, everything resolves, and then like you see a shot of someone grabbing the book that was used to make a deal with the devil. So like, oh, it's not over. Something's going to happen next. And at the end of Goosebumps' Escape from Horrorland, when you go back into the real world and the family is safe and you greet them and hug them in, in their house, and then they found out, oh, and here's our new next-door neighbour who just moved in, who's the mad scientist who was a creator of Horrorland and drew in all the monsters. It's like, oh, so something's going to happen. We're not all safe. They had um they have that saying about like you know comedians having the last laugh or like in a comedy there's always that last laugh. Mm. Goosebumps has the final scare. They have the last scare, right? Where they they have to give you something that says maybe there's another book, maybe it's not over yet, maybe there's gonna be another movie, mm-hmm. maybe there's gonna be another game, right? And whether or not there is that next thing, um, it's, it doesn't matter. Like it it's matter. not even yeah yeah. Man, I actually, I found out I didn't get it while I was playing. Um, it turns out there is a way to get a bad ending for the game. Oh, is there a different ending? There's a different ending. If you, I, I don't know how you do this. Um, I tried to look it up and all the guides were just like, here's how you finish the game. None of the guides explain how to get the bad ending, but there is a way to end up. I think you have to let the parents die, which is like, obviously like in a kid's game. Wow. That's pretty full on. Can you so actually let them die though? Cause like, I remember I tried pulling the lever when they were hanging and it wouldn't drop them. Well, it seems like if you just leave it long enough, they they can die or something like that. I'd have huh. to again. I couldn't find out how to actually set this off, but there's a way to do it that means that at the very end, when they get home and they go home to knock on the door, when the parents open the door, it's two monsters instead. Oh my god! That's yeah, you, if you look it up on YouTube, you can see video of it of it happening. So it's like it clearly is in the game somewhere. 
but I couldn't I couldn't work out how to set it off. And I was like, wow. But it is it is interesting to me that like the game goes to such lengths to not kill you. Like you can't really fail the game. Mm. There's a bunch of ways to get the puzzles wrong, and there's a bunch of dead ends, but nothing that will actually kill you, right? And so the 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 way for them to get that final scare can't be like oh the kids actually died lol like they can't do that but mm. what they can do is yeah like you've got the good ending in which the parents survive but the next door neighbor is the evil guy yeah. or you got the bad ending where the kids still survive but now the parents are evil ah! I was like that's that, that was goosebumps to the extreme to a T I suppose both ways on that too it's the never ending chase like there's always going to yeah. be something more yeah, hundred percent. And the 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 ending of the game is very much on rails, um, but it felt it felt worthwhile because it's such a heavily driven puzzle story game that by the time you get to the end, like I was exhausted. I played the whole thing all the way through straight, and it probably took me like five or six hours. And that maybe mm. that's too long, but like it's hard. The beginning puzzles, if you don't know what you're doing, and you haven't played a point and click in a long time, it's really hard to figure out. There's a hint system. And once you figure that out, it does get a lot easier. Is that with the, like, that's with the face on a door that gives you riddles? Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's the these cards that you can collect throughout. And if you read the cards, they give you hints as to what to do next. Wait, you can read so, is, are those are like the book cover cards? Yeah, the book covers, yeah. Oh, I don't know you could like there were hints on those. Yeah, yeah, you can you can uh I forget how to do it, but you, you click on them and they flip over and it has like a riddle on the back and the riddle ah. gives you a clue as to what to do next. Did you find the books that um, reveal the the map of the underground maze for the fast yeah. travel system? Yeah, yeah, I never, yeah. I never ended stuff up... like that. Like I was like, that's very goosebumps. That was very well done. Oh, and there was also like right near the side of the game. Um, there's there's like a fridge with stuff on it, and one of them is like the um, Monster Blood ATM. Here's the pin number. And then when I found that later in the game, I put in the pin number. And then it was like a first person tank shooter game on it. Yeah. It was it was so <laughs> Out strange. Of <laughs> Um, oh my god! Yeah, and like that—that that, um, trash underground fast travel system. That's all of a sudden like a Doom game. Um, that was cool, man. I found that by accident, and I was like, "What the hell is this?" And it wasn't until two garbage bins later that I actually worked out what it was, and I was yeah. like, "Oh man!" I had did you actually like use it though? Because I I found it really hard to use because you had to like steer and go back and forth with just the mouse. Yeah, it was very Doom slash uh, Wolfenstein 3D, mm. and it's it's not designed for a point-and-click engine, so you, you're just walking automatically. I gave up. I, I tried to use it once after I worked out how to do it, and playing it in a window this big, yeah. like tiny, tiny, tiny window, and my mouse was so sensitive. It was so hard to look properly, and I was like, I'm never going to be able to make this work. Also, that monster that's down there isn't from any Goosebumps book. It's Really? It's, it's purely just like a weird thing for the game. I didn't know that. Wow, yeah. that's interesting. Um, you know what else I found was that pumpkin puzzle, the audio pumpkin puzzle. Mm -hmm. That drove me insane. I hated that I so thought, much. I thought it was buggy because when it when it goes like um that 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 on just one pumpkin, I was like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, yeah. I was I could not handle I, the sound and the repeating, and I was like, oh my god, this is it was that was too much for me. For, for that puzzle in particular, I had to just, I had to look it up how to do it because I I was not. I was yeah, I should have done that. I did a trial and error. And it took forever, and I, I was—it was making me mental. The sounds, I was like, "Oh my god, you—you've got to be kidding me!" When I finally solved it, I was like, "Never again!" <laughs> oh my god. Thankfully, I did—I didn't find any of the other puzzles too difficult because, as like I said, you can't really fail them. Most of it is either trial and error, or the answer is is nearby. Mm. And I feel like that's definitely to appeal to kids. But I did find some of it to be like not not as intuitive as it maybe could have been. 
And so I'm like, maybe that's why the hint system was so well developed. I think that pumpkin one in particular was the one that wasn't intuitive. Mm. Were there any others that you found that you struggled in particular with? Mm. The the other big one for me was oh, I tell you one in the in the Lost Kingdom in the pyramid place where oh, you've yeah. got to solve the four pillars. Yeah, I knew I... exactly what I had to do because I could see it right, and I was like, oh yeah, the puzzle answer is right in front of you. But it was so hard to do with the mouse being so sensitive. And also you have the sand falling down, so you're under time pressure. You're under time pressure. I was like, oh, man, that sucked. That was annoying. There wasn't wasn't anything that was, like, impossible or or really truly difficult to solve. Mm. The other one that got me was the monster blood one where you have to change the main lead girl back into a human. Yeah, I just I just kept I I'm I'm assuming there was probably some kind of hint around to tell you what the combo was, but I just kept trying different combos to, to, until I got it. Which also That's why I don't, which I also worked too it. because then, yeah. cause then you also got like her turning into different monsters and enemies, which is pretty fun. Yeah, so I'm saying I think it feels like you you that one was clearly supposed to be solved. Well, maybe not. Maybe the answer is in a book somewhere nearby. I just didn't click it. But it felt like it was fine to brute force that because it was entertaining. It was part of the process. And I feel like if you're playing this as a kid, like they just brute force that as well. Mm. Um, did you did you watch any of the little videos about the theme park as you went through? Oh, like there's welcome, like here's where you are and it has that yeah. uh, woman. Yeah. That was so funny. They were so <laughs> well those. done. She, like that, that actress playing those too, like she went all in. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't also I didn't realize this. I knew that the game was related to the Horrorland book. I didn't realize it was yeah. a direct sequel to the Horrorland book. Well, there's two Horrorland books. Um Are there? I thought there was only the Goosebumps Horrorland. There's two Horrorland books, and then there's also like a Goosebumps series that's called like uh, Horrorland. Like Horrorland was like one of the big things. Horrorland was one of their most popular ones, along with like Night of the, of the Living Dummy. And so what? and so they did this whole like Horrorland series i don't know i don't know if the horrorland series is like all set there or if it's all just stories from characters from there but i remember there I, knew, were, I knew there was a wii game at some point there's there's a there's a goosebumps horrorland book and there's a choose your own goosebumps horrorland book and i remember like doom slide for example that was one of the things you could do in the choose your own um adventure book right. uh, it's funny though because i i remember reading the horrorland book when i was a kid and like my vision of it was very different to how it was portrayed in the game like I, I like the way I kind of imagined it was like a huge, like carnival ride theme park, or like this giant mountain that Doomside is on, rather than rather than in the game. It's like, it's just like oh, he's a crypt to the side, and Doomside is in it. I think yeah, that did feel a bit weird. Yeah, it, it worked. Like it worked for the game. Like like it's it's one of those things where like adapting things from a book to something on screen is like. You know, when you read something from your book, your imagination can go wild and have a great time of it. And then, like, this one is just, like, a specific vision for it. They're different and they're good in their own way. Mm-hmm. Um, I am... I'm, you know what... I, sorry, you yeah, go. Yeah, go on. Oh, I was going to say, I'm really curious to um, read and check out some of the um, Fear Street books now. I mean, yeah, I think I probably will. I, I say that. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. That's the <laughs> lie. I... Uh, I definitely would be interested in it, but my backlog of books to read is like twice as long as my backlog of games to play. It's yeah. it's never going to happen. I got, I'll never um, get around to it. I have a book sitting on my bedside table that I got for Christmas, and I've be- I've only read the first tra- chapter. I still need to get through. Oh it. man, I could top that in a heartbeat. I have four books on my bedside table that have been on my bedside table for longer than I have lived at this house and my last house. What are the books? Like like five years. One of them is I, I don't even remember. Do you know what? I like I'd I'd have to go into my room and actually check. Uh, I'm fa- I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. Give me one sec. I'm gonna go and find out what these books are. Yeah, all right. Let's do it. 
<laughs> so the books I've got is, well, I've got Living with Chronic Pain by Dr. Dawn McIntyre. I've got Milk and Honey uh, by Rupi Carr. Okay. And I don't even know what that one is. It's some sort of poetry book. And then I've got Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe. And this is Ooh, funny because I've, heard about I've had Emu. this for so long. And I actually ended up listening to the audiobook version after I had LASIK eye surgery. So I have actually read half of this without ever opening this book. <laughs> the book I have by my table, I forget the, the author's name. So I'm actually just going to search it right now. But it's called House of Leaves um, by Mark Danielewski. Um, which I actually got onto it after talking to a friend about uh, Control, which is another game that we're going to look at in an episode. Yeah. And finding it, and he described the genre as new weird, which is a term I hadn't heard before. Um, and hang on, I, I'm, I'm, if I describe new weird is, the new weird is a literary genre that emerged in the 1990s through the early 2000s with characteristics of weird fiction and other speculative fiction subgenres. And the way my friend kind of described it to me is like something can be like really stra strange and weird, even if it's purely for an aesthetic purpose. So, for example, in Control, like all those um, office workers who are just kind of like hanging lifeless in the air. There, there is a reason for it too, but like it's very much there and like crafted for like a specific shot to look really cool at the same time. Mm. And so that, that kind of um, thing is new weird apparently. That's, that, that is really interesting when you talk about, like, for the aesthetic, right? Because mm. I feel like that happens a lot in um, ma magical realism. And I learned about a new genre that I suppose is not new, it's been around forever, but I didn't know that it had a name. And it's called Dark Academia. I feel like I've heard the name Dark Academia, but I thought it was, like, an anime show or something. Yeah, no, it's a... Oh, I mean, it probably is, to be honest, but it's it's a type of, of aesthetic. And so it's kind of like, um, you know, you would say that Lovecraftian writing is is dark academia, but oh, people no who way. dress in a particular way or, like, they listen to a particular kind of music, like, it's a subculture. It's like being goth or emo. So I didn't realise this, but there's a whole Twitter and TikTok subculture of dark academia. And I realise it's an aesthetic thing. And it's like, I can imagine, you know how you might have, like, um, uh, Harry Potter as a, as a uh, steampunk thing mm. you could take harry potter and turn it into dark academia in a heartbeat it's almost the same thing it's brilliant that's really cool it's it's like diving into all these like very specific literary genres and subgenres of different things um do you realize it's, it's a whole other world that you can play with especially if you're like creating something or writing something yeah exactly it's so much fun i think i think for me um the if there's an aesthetic for goosebumps it was captured by both the game and Fear Street. Mm. I feel like I feel like I recognized both of them as Goosebumps pretty quickly, even though they're completely different executions like, on that theme. Goosebump I got it. Goosebumps is very much that kind of like B grade tongue in cheek camp, but like for kids Scooby Doo style. Like I, I, you could almost argue that um, you could put Goosebumps and a movie like Evil Dead Two in the same category. Mm. Especially when it comes to like, yeah, like the Goosebumps title logo is that green slime, and it's all it's all that really yeah, like like yeah, schlocky yeah, yeah. stuff. And then like if you think about like that, that scene in Evil Dead Two, where all the blood is spurting from the walls, but it's you have red blood as well as green blood and black blood, and it, it's yeah, yeah. Oh my god! You know, I just realized I didn't even pick up on this. Um, I was going to mention that the in fear street in the third one mm. when the main character gets stabbed she's saved because she's wearing a bunch of books strapped to her 
and those are Fear Street slash Goosebumps books. Yeah, because at the start of the first one too, with Maya Hawk in, in the bookshop, um, the person comes in and buys a Fear Street book and like shit talks a little bit and Maya Hawk is like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And then like... That, that, yeah, yeah, that and the... Um, the super soakers when they're spraying the blood yeah it's green it's the goosebumps green goo green color yeah it didn't even occur to me but until just now but that's what that is you could also tie that into monster blood i'm pretty sure like the, the goosebumps yeah, books, monster blood like it's green blood that, that yeah. stuff is well yeah I, I found that really interesting that the um yeah there's so many little nods to yeah. goosebumps throughout and i thought that was really really well done um I also like too that something they set up in the first Fear Street movie, which had a payoff at the end of the third one, is when Maya Hawke's character, when she's closing up the bookshop and is putting down the security gate, and it doesn't quite shut, and it stays open a little bit, um, and she never fixes it. That comes back in the third movie when they're doing the standoff yeah. in the mall, uh, and they're trapping all the killers in the shops of the security gates, but that one doesn't shut, and then they have a whole thing. I thought, yeah, really well done. Because I, I thought that was just going to be a Chekhov's gun for the first movie, but it was a it, it was a payoff for the third one as well, which I thought was really well done. The way that they tied it into a brand, like like mm. as I was saying before, it feels like Goosebumps. So yep. it's like without actually having to do what what the Goosebumps game did, and it's like wrapping your head around that. It's like okay, well, the game was released in early nineties or something, so that obviously was for modern at the time readers of goosebumps it's for children this very clearly recognizes that that you don't need to do that anymore because the people who read goosebumps are now adults and so they lean into that but they still managed to pay a decent sized homage to goosebumps i felt as a goosebumps fan like they got it and i was like yeah this feels like yeah. Stein. this feels like that i was absolutely pleased beyond belief watching it where i was expecting to sit through three reasonably okay kids horror movies by the end of it i was excited to watch the third one i right? was like let's do this i remember when you asked me to when i was recommending this pairing i was like out of fear street movies worth watching and i was like yeah they're actually really good yeah um, i did not believe it at first because i was like oh all right then but no you're totally right they had i if, if nothing else comes out of this podcast <laughs> i highly recommend two things Go out and watch Fear Street yeah. and find the Abandonware link online for Escape from Horrorland the game. There's there's another website it's, too. It's silly, but you should do it. <laughs> I should point out I should point out with the with the Goosebumps game too, because I'm not sure what the legal thing is with this, but we I found it on a website that has like archives of all these old games and has them all available for download. Um, well, my understanding is it's abandonware at this point. So the company who owns it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So it's it's effectively but, public domain. Because that's another thing. I tried looking it up. I out of curiosity, I looked up Goosebumps on Steam, and there were two. There are two Goosebumps games on Steam, and I bought one of them because it was seventy five percent off. Um, but this one wasn't. So I think yeah, it is a thing where like it's not available to purchase anywhere. So it's on this archived website. Which yeah, you, it's uh, like it's it's yeah. forgotten. Yeah. Um, that is also like a whole other thing. I was listening to the latest episode of Play Watch Listen. Um. Not that I'm sponsored, but it's another great podcast that I like. <laughs> it is, um, it is. And that in the latest episode, I actually talked about um, uh, video games uh, getting abandoned and and like and being lost and forgotten. So it's, it's something like this. They they talked about like um, content rights and stuff. Like I think the Deadpool game that came out a few years ago, you can't actually purchase anymore. Um, yeah. And like music rights in games like Grand Theft Auto were like because you can't get proprietary rights 
like unlimited. It'll be like for a certain amount of time. And then after that, you have to renegotiate the contract or whatever. So maybe like GTA comes out and then two years later, a lot of the music that they play on the radio and game is pulled from the game because they don't have the rights to use it anymore. Um, this this happened uh, recently-ish. Last year, the year before, I've lost track of time because time is a construct at this point. Yeah. But it was the Alan Wake game got pulled off of uh, the Xbox store for like six months or something. Really? Because one of one of the songs in the game, and it's like on the radio or something, like it's not even, like I don't know if you've played Alan Wake very much, but it's not like there's an ongoing musical soundtrack. It appears huh. like once or twice in the whole game. But they had to pull the whole game because it's it's part of it and they no longer had the license to that song. So they had to remove the game. So if you already owned Alan Wake, you could download it, but it couldn't be purchased anymore. Uh, and they had to clear the, the rights again. And it was a whole, apparently it was a huge process because, you know, we, we know a little bit about this working in the film industry, but in the games industry, I assume it's very similar. Mm. You Again, like it's not just one person who has to ring up and get the rights to a song. There's like a publishing company and then there's the distributor. And then it's like, do you have the right to distribute that in all countries around the world? So it might be that it's available on Xbox in like Argentina, but not in Australia or something like that. It got really complicated and they debated whether or not they should even bother putting it back up. And it was only because fans were like, we really like Alan Wake. Yeah, we think that we think it should be available for purchase. That the studio went and paid the money to have to buy the rights again. They very nearly just went too hard basket. If everyone, if you haven't played it yet, you were never going to. Couldn't they also just make a patch where they remove that song from the radio and just have the rest of the game as it is? No, I think the issue was it's it's part of one of the credit scenes or something, uh... and so it was like you can't just remove it from the audio files. Like it's built, it's it's baked into the game. It's like um, have you played Saints Row the Third? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they in that game they they have a lot of like quite well known music that's tied in for very specific missions and gameplay, and it works incredibly well. Like they have Power by Kanye West, and they have I Need a Hero, Bonnie Tyler, um, like in the final climactic end scene. Mm. And it, it, I couldn't imagine playing that game without those songs playing during those missions because it, it, it's it, just built in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, as far as I'm aware, that game is still on sale of those songs included, so they must still have the rights for it. Um, I, I assume that they have some sort of deal, but it could have been, um, you know, without 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 knowing the details, it's hard to say. But I, I would assume when they did it, knowing that it's part of the mission design, mm. they probably bought you know worldwide rights for twenty years or something like that. So it's very possible that we will see this pop up again at some point with multi. And there's probably games that we don't we we're not aware of where this has been happening regularly, and we're going to see more of it in the next decade because of how awkward those licensing rights are. But it, it is a fascinating thing that um, games can disappear forever because of this. It just becomes untenable to say, well, re-upping that license is going to cost us, you know, $100,000. But we've only sold two copies of that game in the last five years. Why bother? Yeah. Just, just don't worry about it. And it's a way of, like, losing history of video games, right? Like, it's losing art. Um, yeah. It's This is, oh, man, this this really, it, to, to borrow a phrase, it really grinds my gears, this whole concept. And it's to do with, like, copyright and digital rights management. And some of my research is looking into this sort of stuff, but it's fascinating to me that like, for example, um, Cyberpunk, when it released, Cyberpunk 2077 has mm. a an option in the audio settings to turn off copyright music. Oh, uh, like, so like if you're streaming the game, right? Yeah, so that you can yeah. stream the game and record clips and blah, 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 blah. Because of course they have a license to have it in the game. And, and you know, City Project Red who makes that game, they've paid for a license to use the music in the game. What they haven't paid for is a sub-license to be able to give it to other people. So they're in a weird situation of being like, everybody should stream our game, go for your life, yeah, do yeah, a stream, yeah. put it up as much as you want. But they can't do that on behalf of a musical artist. 
So they have to be able to turn it off. And I'm like, what an interesting idea that they were so conscious of that and that people would want to stream their game that they preempted it by putting that button in. I'd be shocked if we don't see something similar on GTA 6 and, and mm -hmm. future games coming out where for the first five years of the game's life, this is the soundtrack. And then if you fast forward five years later, it's a different soundtrack altogether because the music rights change. It's fascinating to me thinking about copyright um, specifically with video games. Because like when you look at it with like film and TV and all that kind of stuff, um, it's the same stuff that's been happening for years. So like most people have a pretty good idea of it. But when it comes to games, it's kind of weird because like you can't copyright a design mechanic. Um, mm. uh, but like uh, Shadow of War or Shadow of Mordor, um, they found oh, that's in, right. they found in their in their marketing that this was a big thing that people loved, and they have this. Um, oh, I forget the name of the system they have. But it's called the Nemesis system. Yeah, the Nemesis system. So, like you know, you can you can. So it's a Lord of the Rings game, which also that's another thing because they've got the Lord of the Rings IP for the video game. So that's a, that's a whole other like copyright um, thing there. But then they have this Nemesis system in the game where like uh, if you get killed by an orc. Um, you don't like die and restart from a checkpoint. The game continues. You resurrect through like a through a plot device, um, and then that that orc rises up in the ranks. And when you see him again, he will remember you, and they'll be like, oh, "I remember you. Why are you here?" Blah 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 blah. Um, and you'll it's have fantastic orc impression, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> blah 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 blah. Um, and you know you'll have this big fight sequence, and and this can happen with everything. And so um, I think the game is made by Warner Brothers. They, yeah, it is the Warner Brothers. Yeah, they uh, filed a copyright for the Nemesis system, and uh, I think it took like two or three years, but they got the copyright for it. Um, yeah, which is really interesting because it, like it, it feels like a design mechanic, um, the way it works. But I guess they must have argued that like, because because what is it? The way the way that copyright works is you can't copyright um, the uh, the essence of the idea but you can copyright like how you've told that idea right yeah basically it's like if you could if you could drop it on your foot you can copyright it so in their instance the nemesis system is a, an intelligent enough algorithm or it's an it's a it's a it's a programmable process mm. and they've copyrighted the specific way that they created it but if another developer were to figure out something that looks like the Nemesis system but is coded completely differently, Warner Brothers would be very hard-pressed to argue in court that, that it's it's stolen copyright. If you lifted the whole Nemesis system as it sits and put it in a different game, they could sue you. But if you built your own from the ground up, mm. it, they would be very hard-pressed to argue with in court. Proof that you can't, um, with proof that you haven't copied it right. Exactly. Now, I, I have like two side points in this now. We're going on a whole tangent, but this is a huge right. tangent. This is what podcasts are about. Let's do it. Um, so, okay. Uh, one big thing I've noticed a lot um, talking with uh, game dev friends too is like uh, people are usually uh, not documenting stuff very well when it comes to um, <laughs> programmers in general. When it comes to all their stuff. Documentation. Uh, so, if someone was like asked to provide evidence of like creating their own nemesis system, they'd be like, they'd be needing to find those documents that they would have hopefully made. Um, I remember too. So, uh, Fallout Shelter, when that mobile game came out, because it's Fallout IP, you're making a vault in the post-apocalyptic wasteland, and you're looking after all your vault dwellers. Um, another another mobile game came out with the exact same gameplay and almost like the exact same like style and art style, and and, and it looked it, it it very much looked like it was a complete rip of Fallout Shelter, and Bethesda sued them for it. Yeah. And I think it actually did come out that they um, stole and reused the same code that was used yeah, for Fallout Shelter. Yeah, they literally lifted code, yeah. Yeah, 
and and yeah, they they lost they lost the the lawsuit and had to pay. It. That's 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 the idea. Is like you you can't copyright a concept like that. You can't copyright the idea of a mobile game yeah. in which you look after your civilians, right? But you can copyright the imagery and the literal code that you can copyright. Yeah. So if they if they had like made their own version of that game, even with the same things of like being in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, they would have been fine. It was purely be- yeah. it's purely because they ripped the actual code from Bethesda's IP. Yeah. Which is like that's the that's the issue with the Nemesis system is the way that they've copyrighted it. It wasn't just a copyright. They've actually, I think it's either they've trademarked it or something like that, but like they they own the concept of the of the Nemesis system, and the way that that's worded is really it's not great for either the games industry or all the entertainment industry in general, because it seems to indicate that you now can copyright a concept, which is not ideal. You know, like also- like if that that would mean that like if I'm talking examples here, let's go with Goosebumps, right? Yeah, it, it would mean that like the concept of a cursed town in which we we follow a character over three generations or something they would be like that's that's you can't use that that's copyrighted but like it can't be copyrighted because that's such a generic ephemeral concept you know you can't really write that down because if you do write it down you have a script and you can copyright a script but to copyright the concept itself that's too much also but like- that seems to be what warner brothers has tried to do with that yeah with the example, with the example of a script too, like don't you inherently have copyright once you've like written down that script? Like, oh you, you yeah, you do. But we'll, we'll get into some weird international stuff there. Where like it's not yeah. quite the same in America. The laws are a little bit different. Okay. In the US, they have a copyright office that you have to go and lodge copyright at. Oh, uh, weird. you know, in Australia, we don't have that. Our copyright is inherent. As soon as you write something down, it's yours. Um, the other thing too with the Nemesis system, for example, too, is like Warner Bros. Like this huge, big. Hollywood studio and AAA, like going into AAA game development, can spend this money and this time filing for this copyright. If an indie game of a team of like five people with not any money wanted to do the same thing, they would not have the budget or the time to be able to go through the same process. So, no chance. Yeah. Like if Warner Brothers can set this standard, that it, it, to me, that doesn't bode well for like what might be possible in the future. No. And actually, this, this loops us back into this whole idea of abandonware is that with this game, so the Goosebumps Escape from Horrorland, it's it's Abandonware because, one, the studio who made it probably doesn't exist anymore. Maybe it didn't sell very well. They never mm. made another game. I don't know. But they don't exist, right? And the copyright didn't transfer back to anyone. No one else, like, they they licensed the, the Goosebumps name. But the game itself, Escape from Horrorland, is the unique story. It's not a direct adaptation of anything. It's a sequel. So it's original story. So they still own it. So when when the when the company went bust, it's not like the rights for that automatically went back to the R.L. Stein estate, because he didn't write the game, so he doesn't own that. Yeah, he just he just basically like gave them the right to use his, to use the Goosebumps IP and the characters. Yeah. So we we couldn't go away and make a game that was about Goosebumps or had the Goosebumps branding because we don't have the rights to it. But we absolutely could do Escape from Horrorland where we renamed it and changed the characters and did that story word for word because no one seems to own that IP right now, which is why it's abandonware. No one's no one owns it, no one's selling it, and so it disappears. And you'll like this is kind of looping back in what we're talking about, but we are finding this as a weird thing that's happening more and more now where small games, indie games, or or even larger games that are made by mid-sized studios, mm. if they disappear the game is pulled from the market for one reason or another, it's gone forever. 
like that's why things like these digital archives and the internet archive are so important because we do actually lose pieces of history because they're attached to to IP rights or copyright that then disappears and and we don't know who to chase it we don't know who owns it or, or how to find them you know and so like yeah things can just go away and you and then we're sitting here going like I'm, I talked about Zork uh, Nemesis in the very beginning of the podcast yep who owns that at the moment like like is it still I think it was like Zenimax did it at one point or Maxis or somebody so like I'm sure you could you know we could look it up but it's the idea of like I'm not even sure if you can still buy Zork Nemesis that 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 may be just gone off the face of the earth apparently Activision is the publisher yeah, that checks out. Yeah, it'd be like they bought someone who bought someone who owned Zork, and so it now belongs to Activision. And there's been like six or seven games in the series, but I haven't heard of a new one for a very long time. That's weird. You know, that IP definitely seems to be dead, and I don't know where you could buy it. I mean, it, it makes me think of the whole Spider-Man example too. Because like... Oh, how like Sony owns... Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. like if you go on Disney+, Plus, they don't actually have any of the, any of the Spider-Man movies, including the MCU ones. At, at least in Disney Plus in Australia. I don't know what it's like in America or other places overseas. Um, and if I look up Spider-Man Far, uh, Far From Home, I'll see if it's on a streaming service. It is available to buy on YouTube. That's the only place. There you go. So I just looked... Yeah. So, like, I, uh, one of the... Uh, like, I buy a lot of Blu-rays, for example, right? So I have, like, the MCU, like, um, phase... phase box editions like phase one phase two phase three and so i have the spider-man movies in there with the rest of the mcu um because because i've gone out of my way to purchase that copy but like if you if you're on disney plus or netflix or somewhere you can't easily watch those spider-man movies yeah and, and, and it sucks man it's fascinating i just looked up zork nemesis right i didn't realize this the, the actual title is zork nemesis the forbidden lands and it is on steam and you can buy it They're, they charge ten dollars for a game that was made in 1996. I don't even know if this game cost 10 bucks when it came out in 1996. <laughs> That's outrageous. You cannot possibly... It was, you know, they're like, oh, you can get it on Steam or on good old games, um, but it's an MS-DOS game, right? So they've they've re-released this so that it's now compatible with like Windows XP, blah, 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 blah. I'm, I'm like, you cannot possibly tell me that you did $10 worth of rejigging on this to make it worth that. At some point, we have to acknowledge that games from 1996 should not cost 10 bucks. What are your thoughts on like, game pricing absurd. in general? On what? What are your thoughts on game pricing in general? Oh, game pricing in general? Fuck, don't get me started. I actually watched the, I think it was Dunkey or somebody did a video recently yeah. about video game prices. And like, while I was watching it, I nearly shouted at the goddamn computer when he's like, Games costing a hundred dollars—that's crazy. And I'm like, yeah, it's been that way in Australia since forever. Yeah, I, I remember paying a hundred bucks to buy Super Mario 64. Like, I remember Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time costing a hundred dollars. And people overseas were like, oh my god, I can't believe games got so expensive. They didn't get expensive; they've been expensive. It's like it's like you know, um, I'm probably gonna buy Black for Blood. I'm gonna wait for say for reviews, but that's a ninety-dollar game in Australia, base price. Yes. That, that's, I mean, that, that's, it's, that's it's, not it's crazy, like, right? It's ninety bucks, but or if you've got Game Pass, you get it for nothing. Is is Back for Blood going to be on Game Pass? Yeah. Oh, that's good. Maybe it's I'll on, do it's that. on the coming soon list. Um, it's stuff like that where I'm like, people. I can't. Okay, I, I saw a meme. I shouldn't. I sound so stupid to say out loud. I saw a funny <laughs> meme on the internet. But I did see I a picture. A I saw I saw a macro image that was a joke uh, that showed something about PlayStation having stats of like. More, you know, 90% of people buy PlayStation games versus Xbox. 
and somebody was like, "What's going on with Xbox?" And sit in the top comment was just like, "We have Game Pass." Yeah, like you don't you don't have to buy a game every month if you have Xbox Game Pass. You're getting like fifty. This is now turning into me just hardcore shilling for for Xbox Game Pass. Yeah. But you know what? I would take that sponsorship. It's a good <laughs> deal. I feel like every time I talk to you about like uh, pairing so podcasts coming up, um, I'm just like, "Do you have this game? Do you have this game? Do you have this game?" And ninety percent of the time, I was like, "Oh, it's on Game Pass. It's fine." Yeah, yeah. It's again. This sounds like a shameless plug, but for real, best value of money I think I've ever spent is I th- that. I feel like, oh, even if you're paying for the full subscription, I think it's like fifteen bucks a month or something. Yeah, it's so expensive. I'm like, is it? Is fifteen dollars a month that expensive? The amount of games I have played that I would never otherwise look at. I mean, anyways, if Zork Nemesis was on Game Pass, I'd play it again. Well, I would pay fifteen dollars a month to play Zork Nemesis again, but I wouldn't pay ten bucks to own it on Steam because that I find that yeah, offensive. I, I think, think that's it's gross. it's that perfect example of like you're on this subscription and a game comes up that you 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 would never like bat an eye at because it's available. It's like oh, I'll download it and give it a try. Why not? Um, yeah, so many times. Um, that that one you mentioned earlier, a twelve minutes or whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's on that's on Game Pass, so oh, see, I don't have to pay. See, I, don't I have just, to pay for that. I just bought it on Steam, for thirty bucks. Yeah. Um, well, see again straight away. That costs you thirty dollars. I'm paying fifteen bucks a month for it. I, yeah, and it's like that seems ridiculous. Where it's like, okay, yeah, you paid thirty dollars once. I'm gonna pay fifteen dollars multiple times, but I'm gonna keep getting new games. Yeah, like yeah. it just seems like such a good deal. I think too, like uh, personally for me, and like it's a very small thing, so I probably shouldn't like put as much focus on it, focus on it anyway. When it comes to like spending ninety bucks on Back for Blood versus being able to get it in Game Pass, but having mm-hmm. games on my on my Steam account. And having like all those achievements under my profile, I quite like. Um, See, this is the thing for you. You're 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 into Steam. Most of what you yeah. do is on Steam. For me, most of what I do is on Xbox, and I can have achievements on my Xbox PC games. And there's with Game Pass Ultimate, you get them on PC. So if you know, like I'm looking at it going, um, my favorite example is the Master Chief Collection, right? The Halo. Yeah. You get all those Halo games, and you get them on PC and on Xbox, and the achievements are cross compatible. So it doesn't matter which one I'm playing on. I can get achievements. So some of the achievements are easier to get on PC because of the mouse and keyboard. I'm assuming the um, save game is cross-compatible as well, right? Yeah, yeah. cross-save, yeah. Similar yeah. to like uh, Destiny being on Steam, where it's like you can play Destiny 2 on either Steam or Xbox and the save crosses over. Yeah, that's You're so playing good. the same character across. It's like that. But I just, I find it I find it so interesting. Okay, to, to loop it back into this idea of like abandonware <laughs> though, right, and, and game pricing... It's gross to me that something like Zork Nemesis is 10 bucks, right? And it's like, if I had to buy Escape from Horrorland, I don't know that I would, if I was being really honest. What if it was like, what if it was $2.50? See, that's that's where you get into that like microtransaction of like, 2 bucks 50 doesn't feel like real money, right? Like $2.50 is like a can of Coke. And again, our American listeners are like, what the hell? Yeah, in Australia, a can of Coke can be $2.50 at a service station, no worries. So for me, that's like, that's value, right? I can justify 2 bucks 50 yeah, like it's so, it's basically so it's not free. Like we're putting a price tag on it for the sake of having a price tag on it. So like, yeah, it's even we want it's to say it's worth something. Sell it right? for so a, it's buck. Got to have a price tag. Yeah, um, but what about what about five dollars? I don't think I would. I think five is too much. Five dollars is where um I'd start thinking about like, do I actually want to play this game or not? Right. Is this just for a laugh, or am I going to get value out of this? It's also the same thing too. If I saw it for sale for five bucks on a base price, I'm like, well, that game is probably going to be on sale for a dollar at some point. I'll just wait for that. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas it being free immediately, I'm going to have a go. Right. So I'm like, at some point, do we have to acknowledge, and this is, this is a bigger copyright issue and all sorts of stuff. Do we have to acknowledge that at some point entertainment is art and art can't be costing you money forever. 
Like the guys who made this game don't ex the, the company doesn't exist anymore. Who's making money out of that? So then should it be available for free? And not just like on an abandonware website, yeah. but like should there be a, a a list of games that are too old for anybody to be making money off that should just be available as 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 a piece of history, as a piece of art? Okay, I, I'm curious now. Are there any uh, like specific games coming out that you know aren't going to be on Game Pass that you want to play? Um, I mean, you've got a couple of the PlayStation exclusives, right? So like, I, I don't have a PS5 yet, not for lack of trying, lol. But yeah. certainly things like the uh, Horizon Zero Dawn sequel yep. that I'm very into, the new God of War, I definitely want to play that. So would you pay ninety bucks for those games? I, I would pay money for those. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. that sort of thing. Of I get I get annoyed when they're full price like a hundred dollars yeah but okay so like if you'd asked me that two years ago before i had game pass i would have been like i'm i'm gonna be mad about it but i'll pay a hundred bucks right because yeah, it's not now i'm like i'm not mad about it i'll pay a hundred bucks because i already have i've saved so much money otherwise to have such an immense library of games that i no longer feel bad about paying for the like handful of games that are not on game pass so it's actually made me more likely to buy a full price game that isn't on game pass that's actually like really that's, interesting. It's like, a kind of a mindfuck. It's like, kind of had the opposite effect that I would assume it has. Yeah. Do, if we don't have, I think we might be wrapping up because I don't have any more points to talk about with Goosebumps and Fear Street. Do you have anything you want to cover? Not, not, not specific to them. No, I think I think we covered the bits I wanted to talk about, and I think that for me, the interesting, like in conclusion, the interesting thing about it, and and now that we've gone through the process of looking at these two things and trying to work out are they similar, are they not, whatever. I'm like, I can say very easily that I think that they're not the same at all, but they feel similar, mm. right? And it's it's because of that underlying uh, Goosebumps aesthetic and vibe, right? And they both they both understood the same truth of what Goosebumps actually is, yeah. but they executed it differently. And to me, that's the most important takeaway is that you don't have to be 100% accurate to your source material. You can take that source material and as long as you've really understood it and you actually know what you're doing, you can take it in any direction. It, yeah, it's kind of like they're on a very base level. They're very different things, but they have that underlying vibe, which like mm. once you start actually like looking at that and paying attention, it makes so much sense. It feels to me a bit like um, the direction Star Wars is heading, where they're doing a lot of stuff that isn't about Jedi and lightsabers. So like Mandalorian, for example, season one in particular, that that to me was like that felt like pure Star Wars but it wasn't about any of the Skywalkers. There's no lightsaber in that. And I was like, that's fascinating to me yeah. that you can take that that vibe and be like, we know what Star Wars actually is and we can give it to you in something that is not what you're used to, but that feels right. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to find out if there's more stuff out there, not necessarily Goosebumps related, but just other other things that have been adapted or have been resurrected. Like, okay, I'll give you an example. I think somebody should take uh escape from Horrorland and yeah. reboot it i think that game could be remade today in a similar way to how fear street was done and be just as popular and if you if you could capture that camp and that ridiculousness but do it in a way that played straight oh man you'd have something amazing you know what i reckon too if you have the right people behind it and the money behind it you could get you could convince jeff goldblum to come back for that oh 110 that dude seems like he is up for a laugh 24 7 I reckon if you if you could get, I think his agent would be the barrier because yeah. his agent would be like, why are we resurrecting this weird camp bullshit from the nineties? But if you could get it in front of him, I think Jeff himself would be like, this is a ripper, let's do it. Oh, and he'd, he'd be like, I'm gonna have so much fun with this. 
And he'll, maybe, he'll... maybe this is it. We should be looking at uh, resurrecting abandonware. I don't know. But like, I do love this idea that um, they, the, if, if you understand the essence of something, it doesn't really matter what your execution is because the heart of it is true. The heart of it is correct. You know, I love that. That's, that's I think, the key takeaway for me here. Oh, okay. Maybe I'll do like a, a, a one, like like wrap-up question. If you were to uh, not necessarily adapt an existing R.L. Stein Goosebumps of History story, but if you were going to make your own Goosebumps movie, what would you make it about? What stands out to you? What do you, what do you want to see from it? Oh, man. I mean, I'd, I'd be hard-pressed to pick a book. Um, I, and I I'm, feel like the Goosebumps books themselves are maybe too short to be well, no, a feature film. I'm curious to see like an original idea. You can't believe that fits. Like in. an original, yeah. So then, what I would what, what I would probably do is, I would spend six months reading reading all the Goosebumps books, everything I could get my hands on, to make sure that I really understood Goosebumps mm-hmm. and like really, really, really got it. And then I would I would write or work with a writer who's done this process with me to come up with an original story that feels like goosebumps yeah that's what i would do because if you if you're trying to do an original story like that i'd, I'd want to borrow elements and i'd probably have some cool little nods and easter eggs to, to goosebumps in there much like fear street with like the books and i do i do a fair bit of that stuff yeah for but sure. i feel like the so focused on making sure that it felt true to form it felt like goosebumps yeah oh man it's it's so cool to think about though and then yeah, because that's another thing. I'm gonna. I, I reckon I will at least check out one of the Fear Street books. I don't know if I'll um, do more than that, but I reckon I will. Um, but yeah, okay. I think that's that's the re- that's the episode. Then I'm gonna say thanks for listening. Rock and roll. That was amazing. I had a blast. It was spooky in all the right ways. I look forward to the next one.